Welcome to Global Stage, a podcast highlighting academic and policy-oriented international research on democracy and human development. Global Stage is a production of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome to Global Stage, a podcast produced by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies at the University of Notre Dame. Global Stage is a relatively new initiative of doctoral student affiliates to the Institute, which features published and in-progress work on democracy and human development carried out by faculty, fellows, and students. I am Natan Skijin, a PhD candidate in political science. Today's episode focuses on a very special event for students of democracy and for those interested in Latin America more generally. In 2023, Argentina is celebrating its 40th anniversary of uninterrupted democracy. To talk about this anniversary, we have two very special guests, both of whom are experts on political regimes, parties, elections, and polarization. First, we have Aníbal Pérez Linian, who is the director of the Kellogg Institute and a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. Aníbal is a world-renowned specialist in the causes of democratization and democratic backsliding, judicial politics, and the rule of law. And second, we have Luis Schumerini, who is an assistant professor of political science at Notre Dame and a Kellogg Institute faculty fellow. Luis is a rising star in political science and is currently studying polarization, voters' behavior, and support for democracy in Argentina. Aníbal and Luis, welcome to the program, and thank you for joining to the podcast. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks, Nathan, for the invitation. So let me begin by highlighting again that this year marks the 40th anniversary of Argentina's democracy. And this looks very, very important as the country's 20th century was characterized by high levels of political instability and included several military coups. So what would you say are the main accomplishments of these 40 years of democracy? Nathan, I would say that the first great accomplishment is the survival of democracy. Right? As you pointed out, Argentina since 1930 had a very unstable democratic regime right? that consistently receded into moments of authoritarianism. And when Argentina's democracy was reestablished in 1983, there were really serious doubts given that history of whether it would survive. And despite the many economic crises, the many problems, the polarization, Argentina is still a democratic country today. I agree. And Luis, do you agree? And what do you see as the main deficits of these many years of democracy? I couldn't agree more with Aníbal. This stability is not just the fact that institutions are there standing, but actually it's genuine, right? They withstood very difficult challenges, economic, social, and also were able to pass important reforms. And at the level, any level you look at, institutions work in a very effective manner. If I have to stress one main deficit, I think it has to be with governance. And by this, I don't mean performance. I mean, it's obviously related, but I mean the quality of governance. I mean, whether actors actually abide by the rule of law, phenomena such as corruption, clientelism, you know, these behaviors are not only intrinsically harmful for democratic institutions, but also really decrease trust in institutions. And I think that this is the main challenge and the, the main driver of current problems facing Argentine democracy. Aníbal, do you want to highlight perhaps one deficit that you see that might pose some 
challenges to Argentina's democracy? Well, I want to emphasize that I agree with Luis in the sense that for countries like Argentina, right, much of their performance eventually depends on external factors that governments or citizens cannot really control. Right? Whether China is growing or not growing, that's something you cannot control. But governance, the quality of governance depends on the citizenship and, and depends on the leaders. And so in that sense, the deficits in the quality of governance in Argentina are crucial. And of course, they are related at the end of the day, the result in, in performance. Right? And we are seeing now a high level of frustration with Argentine democracy among voters precisely because they feel that the political class is not able to respond to their needs. Anybody also demonstrated in a book with Scott Mainwaring in 2013 that normative preferences for democracy are very important to explain regime outcomes, including democratization and democratic survival. In Argentina, precisely 40 years of democracy were based on the democratic consensus. So this might be understood as the existence of mutual recognitions of the actors as legitimate adversaries, the existence of electoral processes whose results are accepted by the losers, and the exclusion of the use of violence to settle political disputes. However, as you mentioned, in many ways, Argentina's democracy has failed to deliver and fueled dissatisfaction. Do you think, Aníbal, that democracy can survive decades of poor results or, put differently, What are the limits of this democratic consensus? I think that's the big question nowadays, right? Clearly, democracy can survive many years of bad performance, and Argentina is the proof of that. Despite repeated economic crises and, and failures, Argentina remains democratic, despite an elite that in the 1970s was not really willing to support democracy, right? Either the, the radical, the revolutionary left or the radical right were not democratic actors, After the horrible experience of, of dictatorship in the 70s, political leaders and citizens revalued democracy, and, the, and that democratic consensus has provided the foundation for Argentine democracy despite the many economic failures of the past 40 years. Now, I think the problem is that democracy can survive, but that's not enough. Right? Democracy cannot thrive unless it's able to provide good governance, deliver good governance, and expand rights over time. And that has been very difficult in Argentina. And Luis, you're also working in a project with Scott Mainwaring, and you're studying the roots of polarization in support for democracy in Argentina specifically. Are Argentines still convinced that democracy is the best possible regime, or has citizens' commitment to democracy weakened over time, perhaps due to this failure to deliver? Well, this is a difficult question to answer, especially these days, right? Many people are casting Argentine's commitment to democracy into question, given the result of the last election that we're going to talk about in a sec. But I do believe that Argentines are committed to democracy. Uh, what Aníbal just described about elites, I think also is rooted at a broader level in society. I think society, and this is what we find, find with Scott in this paper, actually learned through the terrible experience of dictatorship, that democracy is something to be valued because it provides rights and people value democracy because of its rights. So even if it doesn't deliver economic results, people are willing to stick with it because they value liberties and freedoms. And yes, any survey question that you look at, like over 70% of Argentines indicate support for democracy, be it abstract support or rejection of anti-democratic behavior such as military coups or executive takeovers. 
But it's also true that that has declined over time. Still, it's high. So can we be relatively optimistic about this decoupling between citizens' rights and poor governance in terms of their effects on support for democracy? In the sense that even though democracy is failing to deliver in many ways, as long as rights are respected, Argentines might keep supporting democracy? I think we should not be optimistic. I tend to be quite optimistic about Argentine democracy, and, and I get the sense that Luis is too, given the history that we just we have described, right? But I think that if we are optimistic, we should not be overconfident. And so I would be very careful about this, because what you are seeing is probably two generations that were born in the democracy by now, right? They take it for granted, that only have a very vague memory about the dictatorship and the polarization of the 1970s, and for which many of the fundamental rights that democracy produces for citizens are in a way assumed to be guaranteed. That's always a dangerous situation because it's very easy for people to take democracy for granted and therefore say, well, right, we really need change. We really need to replace the political class that is not delivering. And now we can gamble on the future of democracy because it's not that democracy is going to disappear, right? It's just that we need radical change. And that's often the situation that creates a moment in, in which anti-democratic actors come into the political system. So according to your argument, are perhaps younger voters, those who didn't live through the last Argentine dictatorship and its repression, the one who might be more tolerant of democratic backsliding? So this is consistent with what we find in this paper with Scott. I won't say that younger people are openly tolerant to democratic backsliding, but I also think that they show less support for democracy. And in particular, what we find is that the people who are more supportive of democracy are those who are more exposed to transitional justice processes and to a long-term period of acquiring beliefs that underscore the value of democracy vis-a-vis -vis autocracy. What we actually find is that providing younger people with information about this doesn't change their views. So even though we have this kind of inoculation against authoritarianism in older generations that were exposed to a dictatorship and that learned about it early on, as Aníbal was saying, it's hard to pass these beliefs on to younger people because they were not socialized in the same way. So there is this basis, but this base is almost literally dying out. So basically you're saying that information cannot compensate for lack of experience or exposure to dictatorship. Yes. Let me now move briefly to a hot topic in political science nowadays and to Argentine politics as well, which is the one on polarization. And much political science sees polarization as a dangerous threat to democracy, as it makes it harder to compromise. And both elites and citizens see out parties dangerous adversaries or even enemies. Luis, how polarized Argentine are nowadays? This is a constant topic in the media nowadays, but I really haven't encountered much data to measure the degree to which Argentines are polarized. Yes, my colleagues Noam Lupo and Virginia Oliveros, we've been measuring this over time, and we have found an increase in polarization, actually quite marked increase between 2015 and 2019 in Argentina. But I wouldn't say that polarization is 
enormous. I think it's grown. And it's important to make a distinction between affective and policy or programmatic polarization. I'd say that Argentines are still not extremely polarized on programmatic grounds. The differences between people on the right and the left or macristas and kirchneristas, if you want, is not huge. But on affective issues, that is the social distance where people intrinsically like or dislike their opponent, we have seen a marked increase. The consequences for democracy of this, I think, are unclear. We don't know yet. I think it's more obvious to say that at the macro level, it's harder for elites to agree. In Argentina, though, elites don't disagree so much on programs. They passed a difficult law like a few days ago with agreement across very extreme positions. But I think that effective polarization is a concern because if a leader comes in that wants to undertake change through undemocratic means, maybe effective polarization would be a way of the increasing tolerance for it. So we don't know yet, but I think it's certainly a dangerous territory. And Aníbal, are you concerned about contemporary levels of polarization? In an interview that you gave to an Argentine newspaper, the Diario La Nación, you mentioned that some degree of polarization is necessary to differentiate among disparate electoral options and motivate citizens to participate in politics, which taps mostly into what Luis mentions as programmatic polarization. And do you think our contemporary levels of polarization healthy or too high for democracy to flourish? <laughs> I think that's a great, great issue. It seems to me that polarization is for political scientists what inflation is for economists, right? If you have too much inflation, it's terrible for the economy, but if you have zero inflation, then you're in trouble, right? Because the economy is not growing. And I think that polarization has a similar feature. If you have societies that are highly, extremely polarized on effective grounds, as Luis was pointing out, then democracy is clearly in trouble, right? Some episodes ago, we had Jennifer McCoy here in the, in the podcast, and, and she clearly has been studying this problem for a long time in, across the world. But at the same time, I feel that if you have societies in which there is no polarization at all, meaning that people feel that all parties are the same and they don't really have any reason right, to argue about politics or to talk about politics or to question people who think about different parties, when people have this feeling that all parties are the same and really makes no difference, that is a big problem for democracy too, because that's a moment when somebody comes into the game and says, all parties are the same, we really need to wipe them out and start from scratch. And that's, again, the space through which authoritarian leaders come into politics. And can affective polarization endanger democracy, perhaps, if not necessarily some levels of programmatic polarization? Yes, but I think that what happens, this is my sense, is that Affective polarization may endanger democracy because, as Luis was pointing out, right, is often people who are highly, who hate the, the opposite party extremely are willing to tolerate politicians cutting corners in terms of how they run elections and so on and cheating in elections so they can defeat the other party. So that's bad for democracy. However, my sense is that much of the effective polarization that we see during processes of democratic backsliding is not the cause of democratic backsliding, it's the consequence of democratic backsliding. So as governments start undermining institutions, start manipulating the electoral process or capturing the Supreme Court or doing things that undermine the ability of the opposition to compete freely in, in elections, 
then society starts polarizing because part of society thinks that maybe that's justified because the opposition is horrible. And then, of course, another part of society feels that their democratic rights are being affected. And that's usually what divides society in ways that are very hard to reconcile. So, Luis, do you think if what Aníbal says is correct, are efforts of much political science misguided in the sense that much political science tries to reduce levels of affective polarization. But if affective polarization is at least partly driven by major processes of democratic backsliding, short-term interventions might not be very effective or consequential. Yeah, I think we still don't know much. Most of the research on these topics, on the one side, democratic backsliding, or on the other side, polarization, kind of speaks to our topic, but only starts stays one. A recent paper by David Brockman and, and co-authors West, uh, Westwood and, and Kala actually studies the relationship between the two. And in the US, which I would say is the most likely case because you have a president that actually attempted democratic erosion very blatantly rooted on affective polarization. And if I know evidence that people that are more effectively polarized become more tolerant of democratic backslide. I think that makes sense because I think what Aníbal is pointing out more generally at the meta level is that this is mediated by leaders. So it's hard to draw out direct implications of effective polarization for democracy. It's intrinsically an unpleasant issue, right? Like people are fighting, families are divided. But if we want to talk macro about democracy, I think we have to be cautious in the conclusions that we draw. So if you think that polarization is a contentious topic, let's wait for my next question, which is mostly about contemporary Argentine politics and what it says about political science knowledge. So outsiders and populist leaders have recently emerged in countries very diverse, such as the US, Brazil, and El Salvador. But some analysts have considered Argentina a deadline for outsiders, given the relative strength of political parties and the importance of territorial party structures. And yet, however, the emergence of Javier Millet, a far-right outsider, seems to challenge our previous assumptions. So the easy question for both of you is, how can we explain Millet's emergence? I will let Luis answer that easy question first. <laughs> Super easy. In general, I'm, I've always been agnostic of this view that Argentina is very stable because of institutions or organizations. I think the party system changed a lot in Argentina during the last two decades. But I think actually explaining Millet is not as hard as it might seem. Because I think there is one feature of Argentine politics recently that people don't emphasize enough, which actually it's unprecedented for Argentina. Argentina is very unstable in general, and it's been stable for the last decade and a half, but in a bad way. Like, it's almost 15 years of abysmal economic performance. This is unprecedented. There is data that shows that basically every income group lost income in the net for the last 15 years. And during that period, both the right and the left failed. Both kind of economic models failed. So it stands to reason that someone, however crazy his proposals are, that says something that kind of makes sense, I'm going to address this problem through this, me through this method, actually is successful. Relatedly, what I would say is that what's interesting, we're talking about polarization, is that I think that this, in a sense, is the opposite that polarization would predict in that the two blocks of polarization, which are Peronists and Macristas, lost the election. It's a third guy who is actually attacking both sides that wins this. So many people are saying, 
stop fighting, stop polarizing, give us solutions. I don't like the solutions, I will confess. I don't think that this guy is a very democratic one. But I think that this is actually not necessarily a, a consequence of polarization, or at least not one in which people are playing the polarization game, nor is it one that actually indicates that voters are crazy or demanding authoritarianism. And this is, of course, Javier Millet is a very controversial candidate for many reasons, including attacks against out parties and the Pope, etc. Do you think that these types of politicians necessarily pose a threat to democratic survival? So presidents, many people compare Millet to Bolsonaro in Brazil or to Donald Trump in the US. And these were presidents that were said to endanger or threaten democracy, but this country's democracies ultimately survived. Are these fears exaggerated? Should we be worried about the future of Argentina's democracy? A little bit, maybe. I think it's always good to be a little bit worried about the future of our democracy, right? And I think in the examples that you mentioned, you have candidates who get to the presidency and have some very clear anti-democratic orientations. And then eventually they fail to capture the political system, right? So democracy survives, as you pointed out. But one of the reasons why they fail is because institutions, in all the examples that you cited, are very dysfunctional. So they cannot get things done, right? Congress is blocked in part because of polarization or for other reasons. In the case of Brazil, because of the high fragmentation of the party system in Congress. So for multiple reasons, then those institutions are unable to deliver. And when you have good policies, that's a big problem. But when you have bad policies and authoritarian orientations, that dysfunctionality is helpful because it prevents those presidents from moving forward with anti-democratic projects, right? Now, on the other hand, if you have an anti-democratic president who is very successful in capturing legislative majorities, as the case of President Bukele in El Salvador, then you're in real trouble because those supermajorities are used then to capture the Supreme Court and the legal system and so on. And then all of a sudden you slide into authoritarianism very quickly. So sometimes dysfunctional institutions have their advantages, but that's not something that we should celebrate very much. And to finish, does Argentina have dysfunctional institutions that might prevent an outsider to capture institutions and to dismantle democracy? Or... Can Argentina be closer, perhaps, to El Salvador case? I think that as far as the way Aníbal defined this, which I think is a very helpful way of thinking out this, they are functional in the sense that there are professional politicians that can work with the president to do things. But I think in this case, this is actually what worries me about Millet's very likely presidency, because he doesn't have a list or a backing in the legislature which is robust enough. And he's certainly going to propose things that are going to be heavily opposed in Congress. So I think Argentina is a scenario which actually creates high incentives for someone like Millet to try to circumvent Congress and control institutions because he has no other way of going, of passing his legislation. This is interesting in comparison with Trump. I think Trump, I mean, it's hard to compare these guys. So I think Trump intrinsically has more authoritarian instincts than Millet, not because Millet lacks them, but because I think Trump is more conscious about his authoritarianism. But on the other hand, Trump never tried to pass laws outside of Congress because he belonged to a traditional party with seats. Millet doesn't have that option. So the backsliding option, I think, seems more 
tempting to him. So I'm quite worried about the risk of backsliding under a play presence in Argentina. Aníbal and Luis, thank you very much for joining us in the global stage. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Global Stage, produced by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies. Listen to other episodes here or wherever you get your podcasts. Global Stage also can be found online at kellogg.nd.edu or by asking your smart speaker to play Global Stage. Global Stage.